Welcome to the Ownership Economy. In this week's episode of the podcast, we connect with Professor Jan Ekaut, a macroeconomist and labor economist, and a professor of economics at the University of Pompeo Fabra in Barcelona, Spain. Professor Ekaut is the author of The Profit Paradox, which explores the secular trend since the 1980s in a consolidation of corporate power in the United States, its impact on labor and market competition, and the implications for modern democracies. Jan, thanks so much for joining us on the Ownership Economy podcast. How are you? I'm very good. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Well, we like to start out these podcasts by getting to know a little bit about your background. Um, So we'd love to hear about how you got to where you are today. All right. So I guess I'm an economist and I'm an academic economist as uh, as plain vanilla as it gets, because that's the only thing I've done in my life, except from some student jobs. So I got into it by accident, really. Uh, When I studied or finished my studying, my master's degree, I needed money, I needed a job, and I I liked what I was doing. So I I applied for a job as a a research assistant, and, and I never applied to do a PhD. So once I started to do this job, then the person I was working for said, you should take some courses. It would be good for the job you're doing. And then I took the courses and then he said, maybe you should do the PhD. And then I enrolled, that was at LSE at the, in London. I enrolled in it and that's how I got into it. Loved it from the first day and still love it. So I, I don't think I'd do anything else unless they kick me out of here and I have to uh, go and beg as the alternative. Cool. I'm jealous you got to go to LSE. Um, I, uh, you know, I went to a different economic school um, for undergrad and one that, you know, I don't really agree with any of the theory that's come out of the school. So, um, you know, I was far more in line with LSE or, you know, some of some maybe the Harvard school. Um, but um, tell us a little bit about what type of economist you are. I mean, do you consider yourself a labor economist? You you consider yourself a, a macro economist? I would say a bit of both. I mean, we call this macro labor. In fact, so. I mean, you know, what we do is basically try to understand things typically at the more aggregate level, um, at least the type of, of labor I do. There's some people who do more kind of specific micro level uh, labor, but I do the more the macro level label. And so, you know, what we do is in a way fairly uh, technical in terms of playing with models and trying to estimate models and trying to match those models to the data. So we look at the same time at data but we want to understand what really is going on so we want to understand how wages are set how unemployment evolves what happens if you have you know booms and busts what happens to how the economy adjusts in terms of the labor market and what kind of uh, implications that has then for wages what it has for unemployment uh, and things like that cool and who were some of your early kind of influences when you were just starting out as that research assistant before you got on the phd program or maybe when you're in the phd program like how, you know, who are you reading where you're like, this is, this is really kind of what I believe in, or this is kind of uh this matches my, my view of the world. I mean, I was, I was interested in, in labor macro and I, 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 the person who taught me this first at LSE was Chris Pesavides, who went on to, to get to win the Nobel Prize actually afterwards. So, so that had quite of an impact on uh, what I was doing. I was very interested in, in the way he did things together with his co-winner, uh, Dale Mortensen from Northwestern, who passed away, but who was kind of, they were doing that type of work. Um, and so that 
basically determined the, the very first things I, I started doing. I was very much uh, driven by, by their view of the world. What is it? It's fairly um, macro style, what I was describing before. Um, they're really very serious about theory in the sense that they really want to understand these mechanisms, how things work. And in particular, they were interested in trying to understand what happens to unemployment as the number of vacancies rises, as the number of unemployed rises, what happens over booms and busts. And that was the type of thing uh, uh, that I first kind of got, got in touch with. Then later on, I got influenced by people like uh, uh, John Haldewanger at uh, Maryland, who, who, whose work on data and on production and on firms kind of matches in, into that whole thing. And so trying to understand not only what workers do, but also what firms do, where firms are coming from, you know, what is a firm? And so what Haldimanger has always been doing is really looking carefully at, at data, trying to understand, you know, measure exactly what's going on. And this is maybe running ahead a little bit, but, but when I got to the book, many of the facts that motivated what I was doing were facts that Haldimanger was the first one to, uh, to come up with. Cool. And so your most recent book, um, The Profit Paradox, you kind of get into, so fast forward maybe 20 years in your career, and there's this significant state of market consolidation. And I think this is from the perspective of the US, or that's what I read in the book, more so than Europe. And maybe just to give some background numbers on what that market consolidation looks like. Um, so the average profits of publicly traded firms have grown from pretty much nominal in the 1980s or, or 3% to around 7% today. Profits of firms as a share of value is 15%, so five times what it was in the 80s. And aggregate markups, so the price that firms sell at relative to their input costs has increased fairly dramatically. I think it's it's you know an increase of 30% or so was what you um, talked about in the book. And so you know these are fairly dramatic um, you, they may seem kind of esoteric or theoretical, but they're fairly dramatic changes to the competitive nature of the economy, particularly in the U.S. How does this market power, this market consolidation happen? Like, what what do you think was the mechanism over the course of the last 30 years that led to this happening in the United States? I mean, it, that's, it's a great question. That's what we're after. I mean, it's basically what we're all trying to, to, to understand. And, and, and based on the type of research, what we've done, I'll, I'll give a couple of uh, uh, what I see or what our data tells us are the, the main explanation. Before I do that, you, you, I think you nicely summarized the facts. Can I just add one more to it, which is probably a little bit more kind of visual for most people, which is the, the, the Dow Jones uh, uh, index. And the Dow Jones is very peculiar because it's only 30 firms, but the S&P 500 does something similar. And then the Wiltshire indices that are really the whole of the publicly traded uh, uh, firms have similar developments as well. And if you look at that, between 1945, the end of uh, World War II and 1980, if you had invested $1 in 1945, you would have exactly $1 in 1980 in real terms. Okay, there was inflation, so adjusting for inflation. So that basically means a return of 0% over those whatever 35 years. Now, if you look at that same dollar invested in 1981, today you'd have a return of 7% a year cumulatively. That means basically a return of 15 times what you invested. So $1 would be worth $15. 
And that's just another way of saying that there's something really fundamental changing between the period up to the 80s and from the 80s onwards. That we see a very different uh, evolution. Why is the Dow Jones related to profits and markups? Well, because ultimately a firm that um, makes profits will become more valuable because if I'm an investor, when I'm buying a claim to, I'm buying a claim to the fact that I will get the future dividends and the dividends is how much profits you make. And so what we see is that, you know, those dividends in the case of the Dow Jones or the S&P 500 or whatever measure you take have grown so much more after 1980 than before. And that's just, you know, the other fact that people tend to see these stock market indices much broader than, than just see these profit rates, which we don't typically report in the news. And so the point being that, um, you know, these stock market valuations tell us that something different is going on. Now, to come back to your question. Well, just just on that, I, I so when I read that in the book, I didn't even believe it. I had to go and look it up. It blew my mind because you think about kind of the the 30 glorious years of economic growth and how wonderful this was for most um you know capitalist or quasi capitalist democracies in Europe and the United States from the you know end of World War II into right before inflation really took off in the US or um the oil crisis um and the for whatever reason I just never really processed that that period of time saw very little in terms of um, the market cap of these particular firms or this particular index effectively staying stable in real terms. And so I read it and then I went and looked it up because I, I didn't believe it um, and, you know, completely blew my mind. So anyways, back to the question, how how do you, how does this, like what has happened since the 80s that has essentially allowed for this market power to consolidate, not just in one firm, but in pretty much every industry in the economy? Yeah. So, so basically, I, I tend to summarize it into three big headings. One is um, basically enforcement of antitrust laws that has changed. I'll come back to that in a second. The second one has to do with technological change. And in, that, in this case, mainly the digital technology. And then the third one, is has to do with, with globalization. So, so let me start with enforcement of antitrust regulation, which is basically that since the late 70s, uh, and what is known as the Borg Doctrine, which is uh, uh, Robert Borg, who was a, a, a Chicago academic, a, a lawyer who uh, wrote a book, and he basically argued that, you know, what's going on, and this is, by the way, in, in the wake of the whole splitting up of AT&T and the baby bells, he argued that, you know, we shouldn't split up those firms. And basically, we should leave these markets when there's mergers and acquisitions to themselves, because they're really not causing any harm at all. Because what we really should be looking at is how much harm they cause to customers, to what we call the consumer surplus, and whether there's any kind of losses as a result of, of these uh, uh, mergers. And this was in a, to a large extent motivated by work that that's, uh, kind of another Chicago economist had on Har Har Harburger, and he had shown that really these losses from monopoly, if there was any, were very small. And so Borg kind of injects this in the policy kind of machinery because he was a candidate. He was a, a candidate to become a Supreme Court judge, was, was voted down. It was one of these early cases that were voted down. Because that Thank God. Excuse me. 
I said, thank God. Yes, exactly. And so, you know, he was very influential. He was very influential in the Reagan administration. And so basically what happened there is that he, he managed to completely overturn how antitrust enforcement was done at the Department of Justice at the uh, FTC. And that flew over or, you know, the wind came to Europe. Europe didn't have kind of such a structured uh, antitrust kind of uh, machinery yet that came later uh, with the European Union kind of institutions that were consolidated. But it, it blew over, at least in the national European antitrust authorities with the same kind of view, you know, we should just leave it to themselves. And, and the result of that is that since the 80s until more recent years, we've seen mergers that never should have happened. I mean, you know, the, the most emblematic one is probably the, the very recent one in uh, 2013 and 14, the, the merger of Facebook with Instagram and with uh, WhatsApp. You know, I think most people would agree that this wasn't a good idea for the market for social networks. Uh, if you look at advertising revenue, Meta now has something like 85 to 90 percent of all the advertising revenue in social networks. Sure, people argue that there is Snap. I mean, they managed to keep Snap very, uh, very small. There's TikTok, but in the end, you know, this is not really competition. And people say, well, there's still other things like LinkedIn and there's uh, uh, Twitter, but really in terms of advertising revenue, they're small. Uh, and, and they're also very you know, uh, specialized and diversified. And it's one example. And the other example I like to, to use, because it's, it's so kind of uh, uh, obvious, is, is the merger in, in, in beer, uh, where basically now we have three big companies that, that have 90 plus percent of the world market. Um, and that's also true a wave of mergers. And, and I think with, with proper antitrust enforcement, these mergers, many of these would have been blocked. And of course, the more mergers you have of those, the more market power you create. This is one bit kind of quantitatively, we see that, that that's important, but it's you know not the most dominant force. The biggest force is really technological change. And technological change well, being- John, before, before you get into that, what was the big difference between how the antitrust was interpreted in Sherman and, and these other acts and, and what how it was limited uh, in the 80s under Borg. I mean, effectively, there used to be a wider a wider array of things that it, that antitrust regulators looked at, and it was essentially narrowed to specifically look at harm to the consumer in terms of pricing, right? And so what were some of the other things that antitrust regulators looked at before that? I mean, it, it has to be said that the kind of the Brandeisian view from the beginning of the 20th century had already been watered down this idea that you have to look not just at consumer service, but you have to look at you know the harm to, uh, uh, to suppliers, that you have to look at the harm to, to workers and things like that, that had already watered down. I think that what the main thing that Borg did was that, you know, let's just leave it alone. Together with, let's focus on the, on the, on the consumer and the consumer service. And at that time, you know, it was a fairly competitive market. Whatever measure we use now of competition, whether it's markers, profit rates, uh, things like that, the 70s were really competitive markets. And so in a sense, they were right. I mean, you know, leave it to themselves. But it's, of course, you know, the counterfactuals, maybe they were right because they had done antitrust enforcement before then. And that's why these markets were competitive. And then you let it lose. And, and, and I mentioned earlier the, the, the baby bells, the AT&T split up. And so, you know, people in Chicago thought it was the biggest mistake. And I think there's some ground for it, but on, for very different reasons. 
the fact that if you have big scale economies, and I'm going to talk about that later, um, you know, maybe splitting up is not the right way to do it. There's other things, other ways of regulating these markets that you want to do. And, and, and so the splitting up was possibly the wrong decision. And if you look at it, AT&T is back. I mean, AT&T is bigger than it was in the 70s. So, so it, 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 you know, there was a split up, some harm was done. Maybe we got some more competition on the way, but ultimately, you know, they came back. And, and I think that's, that's ultimately what, the, uh, uh, what I think the proof is that this was not the long-term solution. Okay, that's really helpful. So sorry to interrupt you. You're then going to talk about the, the major factor being technological change. Right. So so it's clear that there's a date on 1980 that's, you know, the Reagan era, Reagan and Thatcher, I guess, in, in the UK. Um, with technology, what is 1980? That's where we see the big change. Well, I mean, households start to use computers, personal computers, firms start to use computers and servers. And that's really, you know, there was technology, digital technology was there before. The difference was that it wasn't economically very important. And so from 1980 onwards, it starts to become to have a real impact. I mean, if, you know, this penetration of, of personal computers is growing very fast in that period. And so you start to see this and you see companies that are going to start to lay off, you know, typists because they're now going to have computers and there's going to be all kinds of banks are automatizing their operations, there's ATMs instead of tellers, and all kinds of things that happen, and that's the 80s. And, you know, and once this is starting to have an impact economically, you, that's what you start to see. And, and, and so what does this technology do? Well, what this technology does, does is like most technological change, you know, going back to the Luddites when they were basically having weaving machines that automatized the labor, it's all labor-saving technology. It's machines that reduce the need to have workers. And you can do that in a way that makes it more productive and it makes it cheaper to do that. Now, there's one other thing from this digital technology, which is that, and by the way, it's not just digital technology, it's any rapid technological change, is that it tends to create economies of scale. It tends to uh, uh, allow you to do things cheaper the bigger you are. And once that happens is, of course, economies of scale are the key ingredient for market power. Because what happens is that you, with economies of scale, you create maybe locally, but you, or even globally, you, you create some form of an actual monopoly. And an actual monopoly is what? High initial cost of investment, low cost of production. And what does digital technology do? Precisely that. It's very expensive to set up an operation um, you know, to build a platform, if you want to have it large, then, you know, you have to not only build a platform, that might be the cheapest part, but you have to have the, the you know, have to capture customers, you have to offer them deals such that they want to come and then stay, um, you know, and many of these companies like Uber or like uh, 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 Amazon, for example, they have been you know, operating under under enormous losses under the first few years. That's basically trying to build up either that customer base or the technology, or in the case of Amazon, the, the whole distribution logistics uh, system. And so these kind of large upfront investments create, of course, this this monopoly power. And that's something that's really key to this digital technology because with data, with um, intangible uh, assets, you know, 
that high fixed cost, that monopoly component that returns to, to scale kind of uh, form of operating is, is really very pronounced in, in the case with digital technology. It was like that also when we look at the second industrial revolution. I mean, then it was much more physical uh, with electricity, with uh, uh, telephone communication, with oil exploration, with rail travel. There was also huge upfront investment, but it was investment in physical, tangible capital, and now it's become intangible capital. And so we saw some of that going on also around the 1900, uh, a turn of the century, in the sense that there was also, you know, monopoly uh, formation at that, uh, at that time. And of course, uh, Teddy Roosevelt's kind of, you know, fight against that was, 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 was basically a result of, of, of that uh, um, uh, uh, formation of these, these monopolies. But what we have now is really, you know, it's such a much bigger scale. These companies typically are global. The marginal cost, the cost of production is typically zero. Whereas with, you know, maybe uh, uh, rail travel, there's a huge upfront up investment. There's still a, a, a sizable cost of operation. With digital technology, it's more extreme. And so take a global scale together with a zero margin cost and a huge upfront investment, and you have all these winner-take-all kind of races, and whoever wins it then has that market and can exploit that advantage for a long time. I always say in the economy, technological change is, is both the hero and the villain of the movie of the economy. It's the hero because technological change gives us all the type of progress, growth, uh, advances that we need, that we want, and that we have to embrace. There's no way around it. But it's also the villain because if it gives you at the same time this monopoly position because of the returns to scale that this technology embodies, then what that does is that it, it gives you at the same time the ability to price at a price that's much higher than your cost. And so, yes, you have this wonderful progress that you've basically brought uh, uh, there. You're the one who's invested in this, who made this uh, happen. But at the same time, you've also been able to set up that moat around that technology. You've been able to keep out competitors. And that's precisely what allows you to sell at the price that's much higher than the cost. And it's what allows you to make profits. And in, in fact, if you look at many of these industries, it's all about reducing costs a lot. That's what these new technologies do. You reduce prices too. So people say, wonderful, it's getting cheaper, but you reduce the price as much less than what you reduce the cost of it because you can you know, live behind that mode and that's what creating all these uh, profits. Cool. Um, and so just in terms of giving a, a tangible example of what you just talked about. So if you and I go and raise $10 million and we want to start... Uh, WhatsApp, right? Uh, the the challenge is, is WhatsApp is already global, right? We're already on WhatsApp. WhatsApp already has a billion plus users, um, and so that when you when you kind of when you're talking about the marginal cost of addition an additional user, it's essentially zero, right? Because one of our friends is not on WhatsApp, which is you know is is few and far between today. Cost them nothing to onboard a new user. Um, and so the network effects um, within WhatsApp make it nearly impossible for even a new entrant to come into the market. And in the past, when this happened with rail um, or it happened with utilities, anyone who wanted to use the network had to pay a fee, 
right? And here, you don't really have that sort of situation. And we think about this in the context of WhatsApp. We think about it in the context of, or we should just say Facebook because it's Facebook. We think about this or Meta or whatever whatever Zuckerberg wants to call it today. Um, you know, we should think about it in the context of Meta and in the context of Uber and in the context of, um, you know, other apps that when we think about consolidation of market power immediately come to mind. But the thing that I found really fascinating about your book is that this is happening everywhere and it's happening in every single market segment and market segments we don't really even think about. Right. I mean, it's obviously very visible in tech because that, you know, you just gave the description of many of these tech firms. But what we see is that even in more traditional sectors, say textiles, you know, we have kind of a similar evolution. And you think what's going on in textiles I and mean, what's new in textile. What happens is that it's the firms in these more traditional sectors that are heavily investing in intangible capital, that are heavily investing in digital technology are gaining an edge too. I'll give you the example of this is a European company, Inditex. I mean, they have basically brands of, of uh, retail uh, clothing. I mean, they heavily invest in logistics in a way similar to what Amazon does, heavily invest in artificial intelligence to learn the preferences of their customers. And they experiment like crazy. So they basically, they put clothes out in stores, see how sales go, and then based on that, you know, update what they want to produce and where they want to distribute it. So they have a lot of information about their customers, a lot of information about their producers, a lot of information about the logistics. And it gives them an edge. And this is exactly the point. They can now get what people want faster and above all, much cheaper. And so how do they compete? They compete, given that their cost is so low, they compete at a price that's lower than any other competitor can, can, can make. And so that gives them basically the market share. But you know they still have a, a sizable gap between their price and their cost, and that's where their profits come in. Why can they do it? Well, there's no space for two Amazons and there's no space for two Inditex in the sense that you really need scale to do that. To be able to invest in this big machinery with logistics, AI, you know, experimenting with the preferences of your, your customers, that requires really a lot of scale because otherwise it's not worth the investment. And so then you have this one monopolist in a traditional sector. Now it's clear that this is driven by digital technology, this is driven by the new uh, 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 technology. And, and it's, it's, it's a traditional sector, yes, but it's, it's really driven by tech. And, and that's something that we see all over the data. Okay, because we thought first thing, oh, we see these, you know, these markets rising, these profits rising, let's look for tech. And of course we see it there, but we see it uh, everywhere. And, and this is, I think the, 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 the proof that this technology is really kind of penetrating the whole economy. And, and in the, you know, the hero part, we want it like that, right? I mean, I, I want there to be a retailer of, uh, uh, of, of, of clothes that, that's making stuff in a cheap and efficient way. I want it, but I also want something else. The other thing I want is I want there to be some competition. And again, you know, going back to the uh, size and scale, scale is good, scale is the best thing. Like with network externalities, the examples you gave, I want the network to be as big as possible. There's no point in having two parallel networks, the same way that it's, there's no point in having two railway lines competing against each other, built next to each other. I mean, that makes no sense. I mean, it's a waste of investment. And with these networks, it's the same thing that this is a waste of basically investment in these intangible uh, uh, in this intangible capital. What we really want is we want one big network. 
Now, maybe I'm kind of jumping a little bit ahead, but there are ways in which we can get around this, okay? And I think we'll, we'll talk about this uh, in a second. And, and the objective is just to give a pointer towards when we talk about the solutions, you know, the idea is to keep the size. You know, we talked about maybe it wasn't a good idea to split up AT&T in the 70s and 80s. That wasn't, you know, maybe Borg was on that one was right, that it wasn't a good idea to split up AT&T. But at the same time, we had to do something else. He was wrong on the fact to say, just let them do whatever they want, which is not uh, the right solution. And, and, and so, so, you know, it's again that hero villain kind of story that, that, that you want that technology to be really sizable and, and, and have a lot of uh, scale, but at the same time, you want some form of competition. Yeah, and the, the interesting thing is that the, 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 you know, from the perspective of Inditex, they're not only competing in terms of the scale, but they're now able to predict consumer demand, right? So, you know, the space I kind of know a bit about because I work in it, but the, you know, Inditex has made this commitment to be completely sustainable in terms of their product inputs by 2025. And so a small brand that wanted to differentiate on that has no chance anymore. Inditex also, when people think of Inditex, they don't think of Zara, they don't think of Berkshire, they don't think of and Bear, they don't think of, you know, the 50 brands. If I look out my apartment, right, in Plaza Catalunya, the entire square is owned by Inditex, right? I walk a block or two blocks in any direction and there's this illusion of choice, but I'm just walking into the same store over and over again. And you have this with caring and you have this with LVMH, right? Where effectively, you know, you think you're buying a different brand. You think you have a choice, but you're just buying, you know, one of a series of brands within a conglomerate that reflects this consolidated market power. Um, yeah, and Jan, I thought it was really interesting what you said, because you didn't say this explicitly, but you implied it in that. And you're the first person to make this point in a way that I actually get it. And it's not just a saying you inadvertently kind of are saying the thing that is kind of sexy to stay at conferences, which is data is the new gold. Like they say this kind of stuff all the time. And we're just like, that's nonsense. Like, what do you mean by that? Right. But, but this is a really good example of if you actually own the network and the data that comes from it, you own all of the optimizations, you own all of the marginal cost optimizations, everything that comes along with it. So I'm interested to hear, like in the context of your book with Profit Paradox, like where does, like it, it, in the same way that market power is consolidated against workers, labor power has completely fallen over, right? Like there's in the way that, you know, there's sure the dock workers unions and there's a, a few, you know, AFL-CIO in America and what have you. But uh, what, you know, there are some interesting movements in the data space with respect to workers, right? Then like if we think about the gig economy, there's a couple startups that are trying to form uh, cooperative data models around uh, gig workers owning the data with that of the gig platforms they're on, so that they can go from one place to another and actually have a data trail that they own. Like, what are some of the things that you think of here? If this is what's happening, you know, with Martin's point, like talking about Inditex and the consolidation of data behind the behind the scenes, where do what is the opportunity for labor on on the data side? I mean, first of all, that that you know. One of the, the arguments I've been making in my research with my co-authors and with also what other people have, have, have been looking at that, that this concentration has an impact economy-wide, a macroeconomic impact. And in fact, that's where I was coming from. You were asking earlier, how do I get to this? I, I was looking at many of these facts that you know people like Haltemanger have been uh, putting out there, the declining labor share, the decline in labor reallocation. You see all these kinds of effects on, on, on 
how fast uh, uh, people change jobs, the duration of jobs, not just labor, by the way, also kind of smaller firms, the share of startups, Heldinger has this, this big fact, you know, startups are declining, it's kind of completely counterintuitive. So we see the first thing is that this concentration has an effect on the rest of the economy. It's, it can be split up in two parts. One is a direct part, which is that if I have dominant firms, you know, if I have a copper mine in Chile and there's the only firm in town is that copper mine, they can pay lower wages because people, for family reasons or whatever, they cannot move out of town, so they have to stay there. And so if you're the monopolist employer, you can pay people lower wages. That's one effect. Some of that's going on, I think, Jared, what you're referring to in terms of, you know, maybe workers want to take hold of, of uh, 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 this ownership. You know, you have these, these cooperatives. There's actually some quite interesting stories of cooperatives that, that managed to break that dominant position. There's, a, there's a, in fact, the, the most famous case, I guess, is Southwest, where, where, where many pilots and, and, uh, and stewards and stewardesses became millionaires because they were shareholders of, uh, of the company. But there is one thing, and we find that in the data, that's actually the biggest part. There's also a more indirect effect on the entire economy. And that is that if firms become so concentrated and big, it's obviously not all firms, it's a, the dominant ones within their industry, that since they control their market, what happens is that they can charge higher prices than what they would under competition, given the cost that they are able to produce it. And so if you charge higher prices, what that does is it lowers basically the demand that you're going to be able to sell because your price is higher than what you would under competitive uh, price. And if you sell less, you produce less. If you produce less, you're going to have less demand for labor. And that's the second channel that lowers wages. There's no direct copper mine that pays badly to its work. It's just like what we call an equilibrium effect that goes through the whole economy. It's like a whole trickling kind of down thing, but in a negative way, right? And so we see in our quantitative analysis that that's a big thing. And the reason why it's so big is because these concentrated companies are such a big chunk of the economy. They are not many firms that are a few hundreds global firms, but they are such a big chunk of what's being bought and sold in the entire economy. And so, you know, you can imagine that this has a big impact. I mean, think of an iPhone, instead of costing $1,200, costs $400. You're going to see a lot of different activity going on as a result of that. And so this is the effect on, 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 on workers, on other firms, on small firms, on startups. And, and having that effect is now, okay, that we see where the decline of the labor share is coming from because you know we have this rising profits on the one hand and then we have this lower kind of amount that's being paid out in terms of, uh, of wages by the way also capital investment goes down now capital has two chunks to it one part is you know the profits that you your claim to the ownership it's as if you buy a, an apartment you, you own the apartment and you get all the future rents but there's all other capitalists that you do i put a new kitchen in it and we see that the kitchen investment part is going down too, because you know, you're know producing less. Why would you invest more in machines if you're going to have fewer units because you sell at higher prices? So we see all that happen in the economy. And this is, is, is a huge thing. That's where we see the kind of the decoupling of the productivity in the economy and the wages in the economy. Again, we have to be careful. There's wages of the lucky ones who are the superstars and who share in you know, creating the value to the firm. They get a share of that. But most of the workers don't, and that's 85, 90% of the workers.
because their wages just uh, stagnate. And then in terms of answering or getting solutions to that, you know, you might have a, a Southwest type solution for this one part, but you can't really solve the other part, this, this effect through the entire economy. And frankly, there's only one way to do that is that's have more competition to get rid of these dominant positions of these large firms. And, and you know, we like to think that the market valuation is a valuation of the firm, and it is in terms of profits, but it's not a valuation of, let's say, the economic value. I mean, it's, it's you a Tesla that's worth more than all car producers together, worth in terms of stock market valuation. But if you really look at what they sell and what they produce in terms of what's value to the economy, that's a tiny, a tiny bit. I mean, you know, Toyota is, is, is many times bigger than that, but they don't, they're more competitive. They have less market power and they can't create that much in terms of profit. So really the way to look at it is more looking at sales rather than looking at, uh, or even, you know, cost, because that would be the real uh, 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 value. Uh, Tesla is, is tiny, but of course, it, in, because it has such high profits, it's, it's much bigger. And so with these dominant firms having an effect on you know, the, 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 the rest of the economy, the only way we can do something about it is really getting, you know, trying to, to, to find ways in which we can create competition. How is it that we can get competition in, in a, a, a car market? It's not, not easy to, to get this because we, we know that Tesla has competitors. You know, Toyota competes with Tesla in some way, but it, 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 you know, we don't fully understand why Tesla has that position. They have this position in, in, in part, I think, because of their network of, of chargers, but there's there's many more complicated things uh, going on, on here. And, and I think the short answer to, to your question is how can we resolve this? We can do things in terms of giving ownership to workers and stuff like that, but the real solution has to come from having more yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, and this is, I think it's a fairly subtle point. You know, we talk a lot on this podcast about the importance of ownership for different stakeholders, for those that create kind of marginal value for the firm based on their actions and how to capture that and what that looks like beyond employees. But there's an element here where uh, without without government, this this really can't change dramatically. And I think like the, the subtlety here in where your work as a labor economist kind of ties into this macro work is most people think of micro and macro as fairly separate. But what you're saying here is that, that look, the, the average person in the US, and we can talk about Europe and the differences, but the average person in the US that's falling behind doesn't really understand why they're falling behind. And one, one reason or one rationale for why they're falling behind is that firms are becoming much more profitable. They're becoming much more profitable by making less stuff. By making less stuff, they're employing fewer workers and every single part of the economy is doing that. And so it's not like you can just fix this one portion of the economy. The only way to fix this is essentially to make it uh, a far more competitive economy. And, and the view that I think you espouse and that most, I think, rational people espouse is that you need a role for government to do that because, you know, the firms themselves are not going to self-regulate, you know, Zuckerberg, Bezos are not going to regulate themselves. So, so this is the world we find ourselves in. And now we've got kind of a complication to this that you now have generative AI, right? And you've got these technologies that uh, if I don't have time to, if I'm just, you know, 
going to my nine to 9 PM job. Right. And I'm just trying to, to, to get by and I'm, I'm feeding my kids and I can't skill up. Now I've got to contend with the fact that I'm, I'm competing against a group uh, in the economy that now has access to these technologies that are utilizing the data um, from my participation in these platforms or my consumption of these particular services to essentially put me out of a job, right? To, to essentially make my work even less important or to the extent that it's not less important in that industry makes my negotiating power across the economy go down fairly dramatically. And this is what Ray Dalio talks about when he talks about two economies in the US and, and how there really are these differences in economies. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the role that AI and these technologies, what you think they will play in either exacerbating this challenge or you know, uh, how, how you think the next five to 10 years will play out? I mean, I think AI and data in general is, is, is you know, Zero margin cost, huge upfront investment in terms of getting this. Okay, to so set up chat GBT, I mean, it takes a long time to, to do that thing, but once it works, I mean, you know, you just, you can roll it out. And, and again, a monopolist. There's again, you know, space maybe for two, but there's not going to be space for many competitors. What data by its very nature does, is it, it, it basically, it's, it's, we know it's expensive to collect and it's cheap to, to reproduce. And so, so because this is what we call as economists, it, it's it's a non-viable good. If someone consumes it, it doesn't take away from someone else's uh, consumption. So my view on this for the next decade or, or whatever's remaining of this decade is it's going to be, you know, this this constructing dominant positions is going to be you know going to go on, and it's going to become more exacerbated. I mean, if you think about the the, the following scary thought, what if there's going to be concentration amongst the five and they become one, who is it going to be? Is it going to be Google? Well, like probably six months ago, most people would have said it's Google, but now with ChatGPT, maybe it might actually be Microsoft. But if it's going to end up in such a situation where Google say, let me just do kind of a, a really a, a, a dystopian uh, thought experiment, Google realizes that Bing is dominating, that this is now the new search market. They lose all their uh, all their advertising revenues and result. And so they're gonna say, you know, whatever at some point we can sell, let's sell it to Microsoft. Okay. And then they sell Google, which was looking like the dominant player now is being sold to Microsoft. I mean, this is a very dystopian story, but imagine that. And then think at the same time, you know, there's gonna be changes maybe in the more the hardware uh, space where, where Apple says, you know, I'm losing my market because of that. And so then it also goes to, to Microsoft. I mean, you know, we can have more concentration. It looks like it's impossible. We can have a lot more concentration. It can be a lot worse than what it is today. And I think what data is going to do is it's got, there's going to be huge incentives for creating more uh, concentration. And because, because, you know, once you have that, that kind of that gold uh, uh, that, that, that you're sitting on, I mean, you know, once you have it, you, you basically control not only your own market, but you control your competitor's market. You become so big that, you know, there's people who call this the, the kind of the operating system of the economy, right? Because you know so much about your customers. You know so much about your competitors that, that you can do really things that, that even a market economy can't do because the market economy, you know, sadly or not, which was, which was, what people thought was wonderful is it just gives you a price and that price reflects the value of things. But now I know so much about everything. I, I don't know just the price of one good. I know the 
the price of the good and I know how much a person X values it and, and what they do on a Sunday and, and you know, in all different markets. Um, and, and that's so much more information and so much more valuable. But again, there's only one who can do that because we cannot have two or three firms doing that at the same time because you really need to be so widespread across all these different spheres of the economy to be able to collect all that information and then, of course, to, to, to use it. So my hunch is that, that more data, whether it's AI, how it's going to be used, is going to increase those dominant positions. It might actually go very fast because we're going to have consolidation that might happen very fast. Um, even if, in my dystopian example, uh, say, you know, Bing dominates and, and, and as a result, Microsoft would want to take over Google, they might not even take them over. They might become so much more efficient that Google just dies out. Right again, or or Google re you know says you know what screw our privacy policy. We're just going to take all the data from all of your search. I mean, let's face it, our search engines are like the sarcophagi of our souls, and you know the they're going to take all of that data from email, from from maps, from everything else, all this predictive behavior. And you, when you were talking there, you kind of reminded me of. Shoshana Zuboff and, and kind of the age of surveillance capitalism that there's so much data at this point that the, the micro data allows you to pinpoint future behavior and predict behavior such that you can actually shift that behavior over time. Um, and to the extent, getting back to where we started the conversation, that if you have a, uh, a you know, antitrust model where all you care about is consumer surplus. Theoretically, if someone can better predict my behavior for me than I can predict it myself, well, there's an argument to be made that the machine should predict my behavior for me, right? Yeah. Because, because then I don't have to put so much time into thinking and that's better for me and I have more free time and I can use it towards leisure and that's better for consumer surplus. So this kind of theoretical framework that Chicago set up is really dangerous when put into practice without any sort of value system behind it. And so I guess the question that that comes from that is like, why has Europe been able to prevent this in ways that the U.S. Ha or has Europe been able to prevent this in certain ways that the U.S. has not? Like, how is Europe different than the U.S.? Or do we see the same sorts of uh, trends here as well? Well, the, the first thing, you sadly enough, I don't think Europe is that different. Yeah. Uh, and there's a few ways that we see that in the data. The first thing is that even the companies that are based in Europe have similar evolutions of, of their dominance and there's similar uh, uh, consolidation happening in these markets. It is true that still the majority of these very global dominant firms are based in the United States, but the ones that are based in Europe have very similar evolutions. And, you know, say Booking.com, a Dutch company, you know, for all practical purposes, it's operating out of the US, but it's still a Dutch company. Does the address, headquarter, location, matter for, you know, what happens. These are global companies. What really matters is where the customer is. And, you know, we're now talking on devices that are global products, whether it's Zoom or whether it's uh, the, the, the computer on which we're doing it, are the apps that we use, you know, they're all global products. And so whether the address of headquarters is in somewhere in California, or it is in Japan, it doesn't really make a difference. I mean, from a practical viewpoint, if some people argue that this is a US story, Alabama doesn't have many of, or any of these tech companies, and they're part of the United States. And in fact, you know, even in California, if you live on the wrong side of the 
mouse, you don't see any of that huge benefit of these tech companies either. But at the same time, both in Alabama and on the other side of the mountains in California, people are using those devices and they're using the products. And, and, and that's really what, where, where the impact is. And by the way, it's not just for the users and for the customers, it's also for the workers whose jobs are affected by the demand to, you know, what I was explaining earlier. So, so even if we saw that all these companies were in the US, given that they're global companies, I would say the customer and the worker is affected globally anyway. It doesn't matter that they are in the United States. But our data doesn't tell us that. We see that there's quite a bit of this going on in Europe. The other thing is also that there's not that many of those firms. You know, these really global dominant firms, there's a few hundred, five, six hundred maybe. And so, of course, you know, it, it, there's not that many. So, you know, you, you won't, you wouldn't expect to find many in, in Germany and or you wouldn't ex expect to find many uh, in Holland. If you find a handful, it's going to be, that's already a lot. And, and I think that's more or less uh, uh, what we see. So, so I, I'm not so kind of optimistic on Europe being so different in that sense, both in terms of the firms that are based in Europe and the fact that our customers are using products that are global. But there is a difference, which is that, and this is now the policy part, Europe is, is taking a little bit of, of an, an advantage, if you want, over the US in terms of the legislation to do something about it. So we have the Digital Markets Act, which is something that's been voted in, in the European Parliament. We have the Digital Services Act, the same thing. And, and in fact, the conferences that I go to and where we see Vestager speak, uh, uh, you know, come and, and talk about it, who's there, Lina Khan and, and, and Jonathan Cantor are there, the, basically the policymakers from the equivalent side on the, on the United States, the FTC and the Department of Justice. And of course, they're very interested in seeing what happens. Now, there's a big political constraint that the US Congress has in terms of do we want this to happen? But one surprising thing I also see in the US is that both on the left and on the right, Republicans and Democrats, there is interest in doing something about it, maybe for different reasons. You know, the, 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 the Democrats for the traditional reasons that you know, maybe these big companies are too profitable and are bad for that reason in their view. The Republicans, because they don't want the political power to go to these, you know, lefty uh, California companies that, that dominate really how the political process is happening because Facebook can determine who's going to win an election. And so maybe for different reasons, they want to do something about it, but there is at least talk about it, whether politically it will happen in a polarized Congress that the, the US has at the moment, we don't know. But even in Europe, where we have the laws voted, it still is a question whether this is actually going to happen. Because you know, one thing is to have a law, but then you have, on the other side, you have these enormously dominant and rich firms who have an army of lawyers and experts who can argue in front of the regulator, in front of a judge, in front of a competitor, that these new laws you know, have exceptions. And by the time they've litigated this for four or five years, the law is just going to lose all its power. And this is, I think, the biggest danger that we see today. We have laws and attempts to do something about it. There's even political momentum and political will to do something about it. But we can't go against that you know, tsunami of, of resources that these, these big firms have. Okay, makes sense. So before we get into some of your solutions, so this isn't just a totally depressing podcast, um, there are two uh, kind of incomplete solutions that you talk about in the European model that I I thought were interesting to bring up because people often think about them from the European model 
um, on why it's better, but you essentially show, well, maybe not. One was flex security under the data model. And you essentially show that in you know equilibrium, this is a zero sum game. And then the other is kind of the trade-off between unemployment security versus job security. Can you just talk about those two things and why these two kind of policy innovations, one's kind of dominant in the, the, the Scandinavian countries and one is more dominant in Southern Europe, um, like really aren't solutions to this, um, given what they do, that they're not complete solutions to this, given uh, the realities of some of the work that you've done around like where equilibrium kind of nets out from a, from the labor market. I mean, I think that the, the, the flex security is, is a, I think, a beautiful example where you get a counterintuitive outcome. So what happened in Denmark, where it really started in, in the 90s, they had a big recession, things went kind of south in, in, in many uh, sectors of the, of the economy. And so what they saw, they had huge unemployment. And part of the unemployment, and in fact, Southern Europe is struggling with this, is, is coming from the fact that, that you know, workers are really, really anchored to the jobs that they have. They treat them like ownership. They treat them like, like something that, that, that's there for life. And so what they figured out in, in Denmark is that if you let people lose their job, which is unfortunate, you free up new jobs because then someone else can be hired. And so by making these kind of these labor markets more flexible, that's, you, know, you basically create new jobs. Because you know, one of the reasons why a new job is created because you destroy another one. Now, of course, that's why it's called flex security. You want to make sure that the ones who lose their job have safety net and you help them get back into their job. And this is, I think, is a, a huge success story um, for how you want to really have these, these, these flexible markets. And, and it's really, you know, in a sense, a very Anglo-Saxon American model where you say, you know, we want to have flexible labor markets. And if you look at job satisfactions, the Danes are really, really happy because what kind of things happen? They don't care about losing their job. They know they can get another one quickly because the whole market is flexible anyway. I mean, if someone in Greece or Portugal or Spain loses their job, it's, it's a drama because you can never really get a job anymore. If you lose your job above the age of 50, there's no way you can get back into uh, uh, that again. And I think these are, are beautiful examples of, of somewhat counterintuitive uh, um, uh, solutions can, can be so much better for everyone. But of course, this is hard to explain. It's the same way that it's hard to explain. You were, you were talking about, about social networks. How do you explain to people that it's bad that you use an app that's for free? You know, I use Google Maps or I use Instagram and it's for free, what can be bad about it? Well, something's bad about this because, you know, this is a monopolist who offers you this for free, but you pay with your data and how do you pay for it? Because, you know, your sports sneakers is being advertised on your Instagram feed. And because that's a monopolist, Instagram is the monopolist, they can charge much higher rates for advertising. So your sneaker is going to be more expensive. That's eventually how you're going to pay for it. And so then you think I have this free app, okay? There's nothing wrong with it, but hold on, your sneaker is more expensive. And, and you end up paying, your date is paying for this. If the market was competitive, these advertising prices would be lower. And therefore your sneaker in a competitive market would be cheaper. And therefore, you know, you'd be better off. And, and even if you would literally pay with your data in a competitive market, what they would say is you want to use Instagram to really what how we can do this and how we want to do this. I'm going to offer you, you know, Spotify for free. I'm going to offer you a, a subscription to Netflix for free. 
And that, that would be the way in which they're not going to pay you money, but they're going to pay you in content and, and, and in services, uh, which is the way to do it. And I think, you know, ultimately, I think that, and this is coming back to Jed's question from earlier on, on what to do about this that affects the rest of the economy. You know, we know that splitting up some firms is okay, but in other cases, it's not a good idea because if you want to have a large network, you want the network to be as big as possible. Now, the question is, how can you get competition on these networks? And the way I think is the best and proven way to do this is to use a concept that we call interoperability, which is an idea that says it's coming from, well, you know, I want to have my devices to be interoperable across different technologies. And the simplest kind of naive example is just a plug that should work on different devices. Because if the plug is specifically each device, that's a little piece of monopoly power that they can exploit to maybe stick to that particular either plug or to that particular device. And so if you make it by law interoperable, then it's much easier to switch devices. You don't have to worry about this. But this is much bigger than that. Because if you think about, you know, what, what we, we see is, is in terms of our cell phone number or what the World Wide Web is, these are examples of interoperable technologies. Because I, I can make a phone call from a European operator to AT&T in the US. I cannot send a message from WhatsApp to Telegram. That's just impossible. These, these networks are completely separated. Now, if the regulator said you have to be able to do that, technologically, that's perfectly possible, the same way that I can send an email from one uh, ISP to another ISP, I can perfectly do that, okay? We would be able to send messages from Instagram, direct messaging to Telegram, to, I would even be able to send it to, you know, uh, one, a, a tiny one in a little village that, that has decided to set up their own messaging service. But at the moment, we don't have that because these technologies are not interoperable and to see how much of an impact these interoperable technologies have is that there's one difference between the Europe and the US, and this is just a historical accident that had to do with the integration of the European Union in the 90s, that the European, uh, um, European uh, regulators said, if you have a network of uh, um, cell towers for, for, for uh, cell phone use, that network is very expensive to set up. It's very expensive to build. And so the, the, the rule, the regulation said, if you own such a network and a competitor wants to operate in your market, they can use your network. And the regulator sets the rental price. So they don't have to build a parallel network. That means that you facilitate entry into this market and you exploit the large network of cell towers you already have. You don't have to have two parallel networks. What happens? The competitor comes in lowers prices wants to get customers. Now the incumbent firm has to react because they're losing their customers, they're lowering prices too. What happens, you have competition on one large network by multiple providers. And it's a simple rule. The government doesn't have to do anything. They just have to supervise and enforce the rule and set the right rental price. If the rental price is too low, then there's not gonna be enough investment in the network. If it's too high, it's gonna be not enough competition. Now, what's the Consequence of that, if I look at my phone plan in Europe, it costs about half to a third of what it costs with AT&T in the United States. So my US plan with AT&T costs about nearly three times as much. And why is that? Because in the US, we don't have that simple rule of interoperability. AT&T doesn't have to open their cell network to any competitor. 
And that's why there's only really three big providers. Whereas in Europe, we have between 100 and 150. And again, to come back to your earlier question, Martin, this is not that Europe is bad, it's just that one example where we see that this interoperability has a huge effect on prices, has a huge effect on the number of competitors, and ultimately is what's, you know, what, how you can manage to break that dominant position. But notice here that the way it's being broken is that you maintain a large network. You don't split up the network of cell towers. You don't build parallel networks of, of cell towers. You keep that one network, which is really what you want. You want the scale. But at the same time, you put many competitors on that. On that. We could do similar things in terms of um, you know, uh, the App Store and Google Play. We could say that network is open. Any store can go on there. You know, you can and compete on it. What, of course, they do now, it's literally a duopoly. For every transaction, they charge 30%. This is really not their cost. I mean, this is pure monopoly profit or duopoly profit in this case. And by opening this up to different stores on that one network, which is a very simple piece of regulation, you just have to enforce it if it's not being enforced. Of course, these companies are not going to like this at all. If you tell AT&T today, you have to open up your cell network for two competitors. The first thing they're going to say is, are you crazy? I mean, I'm going to lose all my profits, right? And they are going to fight this uh, very fiercely. Cool. That makes cool. a lot of sense. And then you take this one step further and you talk about kind of the, the forced anonymous or the forced kind of public data release or a release of forced um, anonymized data, similar to what happens when researchers are trying to allow for other researchers to repeat their trials, to actually use the same data set. They'll often anonymize the data, they'll, they'll open source it so other researchers can try to use it. Can you just talk a little bit about that policy idea that you have? Because I thought that was pretty interesting and I had not read it before. I mean, think of, of maybe the, the best example is the, the amount of data you need for driverless cars. So this is millions of hours of driving. And, and it's clear that if you're the first one to have collected this data, you're going to have an edge over anyone else. And so there's really no point of anyone duplicating that investment. The same way that you don't want to duplicate again the railway line next to each other. It's, it's just a one-off fixed cost. Now, the data can be used by anyone else. As you say, you might want to anonymize it. You want to do things to the data. But the data is valuable to someone else. And it costs nothing to share the data. It's just server space. But you know, it's really nothing in terms of the cost of transferring this data from one uh, uh, kind of firm that wants to analyze the data to someone else. Now, clearly, the firm that's collected this data wants an incentive to collect the data in the first place. And, and so what I call this reverse patent is a way of saying, you can keep that data in exclusivity for some time, just the way you can have exclusivity about a patent in terms of you producing it yourself. But after a while, you have to put it out open and you have to make it accessible to competitors. And then at that point, a competitor can enter this market. Once this is open uh, uh, source, I can say, I want to enter into the driverless car market. I don't need millions of hours of data that I can collect. I can just, you know, pick them on the service. I'll pay a fee, a rental fee and things like that. But I won't have to, you know, make that enormous time uh, uh, costly investment and of course also very expensive uh, in terms of the dollar amount. So I can kind of enter into this market very quickly and you can have competition. And that's the whole point. The whole point is to try and, and break these modes 
while at the same time not duplicating these investments, you know, not collecting or reinventing the wheel twice. You want, you don't, there's no point in collecting the same data twice. And so, so that's, that's the idea behind this reverse pattern. Interesting. And then the, the last kind of, or one of the, the final kind of big ideas in the solution set that you had was, look, no matter what we do from a policy perspective in terms of these interesting ways to make the market more pro-market and less pro-business um, and, and one that's more competitive, the reality is, is that there's a lot of regulatory capture, particularly in the US with Citizens United and other laws that allow for uh, industries that are cash rich or particular firms that are cash rich to essentially mold the industry to their advantage. And so if you really want to combat this long term, you argue for the development of something similar to the Fed, but focused on competition authority with the thought process that, look, if you really want to go up against Apple and Microsoft and Facebook and actually have a chance, you just need more lawyers. Yeah. I mean, I, I think resources is a big thing. I always use the, the, the back of the envelope calculation that the, the Fed, the, the monetary authority in the US and similar in Europe for the European Central Bank spends about $5 billion. Economists calculate that the cost of inflation, of keeping inflation at 2%, which is the, the, the target of the, the, the Fed, is, is about half a percent of GDP. So think 5 billion for half a percent of GDP. People calculate the cost of the lack of competition at the moment at around 8 or 9% of GDP. So it's, you know, it's nearly well, 16 or 18 times bigger than what the cost of inflation is. We spend half a billion. So basically, it's 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 we spend one tenth for something that's sixteen times more costly to the economy, and so it's clear that there's something wrong with the magnitudes here. Now, why is there not more investment? You can say it's the same thing as in in you know why don't I have more uh, um, people investigating tax fraud? The more people I put there, the more I'm going to collect, and it would be true here here as well. The only difference is, of course, that here the companies they don't really like or competition. If I have one of these modes, I don't want anyone to touch it. I want to keep it. If I'm, you know, Tim Cook, my job is to keep the mode and I want to work on it. And, and, and this is now getting to Martin's point about the, the regulatory capture. I mean, they're, they're trying everything to keep that vicious circle between, you know, market power, economic power with profits and then political power that influences what kind of regulation you get that you know is meant to destroy your market power, but you keep your investments in that political power to make sure that they don't destroy it for you. Yeah. I mean, and this is for me when I was at you know Chicago 20 years ago and I was in kind of these undergraduate economics classes, and I was just like, look, this, you know, this theory in the real world is like a nuclear bomb. You know, I mean, it's so toxic in terms of not being practical. And we see that now where you essentially have in the United States, you wonder, well, why can't we do more around competition authority um, or really any role for government? Um, and this came out, I forget who wrote the book. Um, I'm trying to think of the guy. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's kind of uh, Michael Lewis who wrote The Fisk, oh, yeah. Fisk and then essentially wrote this book on why do Americans hate their government? And it's like, well, they've been taught to hate their government, you know, over a 30 year period based on yes. a bunch of theory that, you know, came out of very few institutions, one of them being Chicago. Um, and so mm -hmm. um, how do you get anything done when you don't believe that the government is there to to kind of enforce the rules of the game, but instead 
yeah. you know, business is there to enforce the rules of the game. But what we've seen yeah. over again is that business has its own interests in mind. So there's an interesting yeah. anecdote on that one about hating the government that the, the U.S. Census, which is a government institution, asks firms, you know, to give them the data about their operations and they. And so many of the firms don't want to do that. They say, you know, you're you're a government institution. I don't want to do it. But they're willing to give it to a private company. So the census buys it from the private company. And so, so, so basically, the, the, the firms are happy to give it as long as it's not to the government. But then since it's a business, that firm is doing something with the data. So they sell it to the census. One thing I wanted to point out to you, which I'm really glad you said, is something that I love to point out very often, which is that uh, companies don't like competition, right? Like capital owners, capital, I'm a VC, capitalists don't like competition, right? Like this is very obvious once you actually talk to them. So it's kind of, you know, talking about what Martin was saying about these tropes we've been sold about government. We've sold a totally different one, I think, on the microeconomics level as well, coming up through school. People are like, oh, like, yeah, you have the competition, you know, Peter and your neighborhood and that, and then another store opens and it drives prices down. It's like, no, 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 no one likes this. And they are actively aggregating market power and regulatory power to ensure that it doesn't happen, right? And that's, I think, really important point to like rail home there. Oh, totally, totally. I mean, there's there's even books written about it, you know, that how can you make money? Create market power, create kind of a moat. That's how you make money. <clears throat> uh, I can't wait till Peter Thiel kind of finally goes to New Zealand and we don't have to hear about him anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I was exactly who I was thinking about, by the way, Martin. Like, you know, literally writing entire books. That's the first, that's the first chapter in his book, right? Create a monopoly. That's the first chapter. So... All right, cool. Well, we've taken too much of your time, Jan. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Um, I really love the book. Um, people should get it. It's The Profit Paradox. Um, where can people find you online and where can they follow your work? Um, they can go to mynamejanico.com or they can go to theprofitparadox.com. Uh, in fact, I have all the data there. So if people are as nerdy as I am and are interested in playing around with the data, everything that's in the book is uh, out there to play with. Awesome. awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. It was a great conversation. I love it. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Ownership Economy. Don't forget to like and subscribe.